Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause." But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus gives this teaching before he goes to the cross. And so it may kind of seem somewhat... Uh, ironic or, or out of place that we're now reading this passage after Easter, but 
the way that the readings are set up in our table of readings actually helps us to remember those very things that Christ himself taught. Jesus said that when he sends the Holy Spirit, the Spirit would bring into remembrance everything that he had taught them. And so as Christians, when we're celebrating the calendar, we, as we're going through the particular seasons, we do not neglect the fact that, at least in from our perspective, something has already happened. So for example, we sang a song today that mentioned Jesus Christ's ascension into the heavens and his reign at the right hand of the Father. And if you've ever been with us for any length of time, you notice that we say the entire creed when we are celebrating every week. And so in the midst of Christmas, we're still mentioning the fact that Christ has died and was buried and raised. So it's not to say that we can't Uh, visit a portion of scripture or talk about something that's happened to Christ outside the timeline, so to speak. Uh, Although it's helpful to emphasize that portion of the calendar, it can't be done in such a way as we say, well, Christ isn't yet ascended. That's not what we're intending to imply. And so as we're celebrating Easter, we're not ignorant of the fact that he has sent the Spirit even though he's describing the promise of the Spirit as we looked at last week and here at the end of the chapter this week. We're reinvigorating Christ's teaching by encountering this after uh, after his resurrection. He has sent the Spirit. The Spirit is reminding us what Christ has said as it's been faithfully recorded in the Scripture. And the Spirit, by God's grace, is reinvigorating or re-emphasizing Christ's teaching. And in fact, that is the Spirit's job, mission, and desire. And so as we seek to be disciples of Christ, we must re Uh, encounter the words and teachings of Christ. Just as if you've read a chapter in your Bible, it does not mean you never have to read it again. So also it's right to re-emphasize or to re-encounter the teachings of Christ that he gave before the resurrection, after the resurrection. And in fact, that is exactly what is intended in our schedule of readings. So we've spent some time earlier in Easter looking at the various gospel narratives or the historical recordings of the facts of the resurrection and what happened after the resurrection in the disciples encountering Christ. But now in the last two or three weeks, we've turned directly to the teachings of Christ himself that he gave right before he was to go to the cross. This is the upper room discourse in John, John 13, all the way through the end of chapter 16. And really breaking into chapter 17, we see Christ's teachings, his final, most important teachings that he wanted to give the disciples so that they would know what they were to do after he was risen and had sent the Spirit. And so as those who are disciples of Christ, and and just to be clear on that, if you are a Christian, you are supposed to be a disciple. There is no second category of, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not very serious, and one day I'll eventually become a disciple. You are a disciple of Christ, or you are not a disciple of Christ. You are a Christian, or you are not a Christian. They are exclusive terms. And so Christ here gives these teachings not to the most zealous, but all of his disciples. He doesn't give them to the mature, but rather those who are actually spiritually weak. And so we see that Christ's teachings for us about abiding in him and believing in him and obeying him and therefore bearing fruit, these are not to just the Christians who are into evangelism. These are not just commandments for Christians who are really focused on doing good works. These are for all Christians. This is what it means to follow Christ. And Christ himself says this, and he gives very intense words 
concerning those who are not in the business of bearing fruit. Now, does this mean you will be effective as effective as a, I don't know, a Billy Graham or something like that? Uh, no, it doesn't mean that you will bear much fruit in the same way and same category, but you have to bear some fruit. And, and that's his qualification here. And so we're going to look at what it means to be a true disciple or a false disciple, a true branch or a dead branch. And one of the things that I have loved in my encounters with the scripture as I've learned more about plants, just how rich the scripture is concerning these imageries of plants. And I just want to give, I've said this many times, but I just want to reinforce this idea. God did not, for example, when Paul says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, Paul isn't making a metaphor saying Christ's love is like a husband's love. God instituted marriage so that we would have a small mirror by which to see the divine reality of the eternal Son of God purchasing for himself a bride. Likewise, the Father is the vine dresser, and God gave us vines so that we could know something about him. Not He doesn't condescend down to our language and use something that we know. He created and he has uh, established existence so that there is a reality in which the Father is pruning the vine, which is those who have been grafted into Christ. And and we can talk about it because he gave us that language. It's much more powerful than poetic metaphor or simile or analogy. It's actually a divine reality which God has saw fit to allow us to see even in a small glimmer in a in a dark way. And so as you begin to encounter this realize that that the reality is stronger than the physical reality that we have. The, the existence of the Father and his desire to prune the vine, his desire to prune the branches that do not uh, bear fruit, uh, remove the branches that do not bear fruit and prune the ones that do, that is a stronger reality than the very plants and trees that we encounter today. And so God gives us these things in creation in order that he would then be able to speak to us in a way that we can understand. And so the Father's desire to prune the vine will be our first uh, point, first emphasis. The love of Christ and obedience being one half of the same coin uh, is, is really what this leads into. And seeing that loving Christ and obedience are not optional. You can't say you love Christ and then disobey him. And this is why I believe the first century church, the first few century church, was so popular and so attractive and so wonderful because it was exclusive. Today, I think in a, in a desire be, to be relevant to the culture, we have so dumbed down the content and so lowered the barrier to entry that there's nothing attractive of the exclusivity of Christianity. It's just one among other faith claims or ways to live your life or things that hobbies that you might be into. You know, this person's really into spiritual things and this person likes books and this person over here likes Jesus. No, Jesus is not like the other things that you can either participate or can't participate. Love of Christ and obedience are two sides of the same coin. They go together. They're, they're meant to be together. One flows from and the other implies or causes. And so... Moving from obeying Christ, seeing that love of Christ becomes a way forward for love of neighbor, uh, Christ said the two greatest commandments were really one and one the same, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Or to consider your neighbor on equal position when deciding whether I'm going to love and do an act of mercy or be selfish and 
focus my time and money on myself. What Christ is saying when in the great commandment uh, event, when he's, when he's describing the great commandment, is they're really synced. Yes, love God comes first, and we have to even be loved by God before we can love him. But being loved by God, as John says in his epistle, necessarily means we will love our brother. How can we love God if we don't love our brother who we see? How can we love the one who is unseen unless it becomes real in what is seen? Hatred from the world, not in the sense that we are hating the world, but rather that the world is hating us because we should bear a resemblance and a similar speech pattern to Christ. We've, we've emphasized that a lot this Easter is the idea of sounding like Christ or having a family resemblance to Christ. And so from there, Jesus briefly mentions the spirit at the end of the chapter, and we'll see how that plays into uh, how all of this is to come about. So Christ begins this with an analogy or a metaphor And he speaks of the father as a keeper of the vineyard. One of my favorite things in spending time in the Old Testament scriptures or Old Covenant scriptures has been my uh, newfound appreciation for God's grace in bringing the Israelites into the land. Many people falsely think that God uh, desired the Israelites to commit genocide. They use that term as if they are the ones to decide who genocide is. They commit genocide against the people who lived in the land of Canaan. And, and we do know that God was utterly severe in his judgment against sin. But what is very often neglected is in any description of the practices of the land or the people in the land who were polluting and defiling the land, which caused them to be dispossessed. The, the writers of old tell us that they are those who sacrifice their children to demon gods that they make of their own hands out of bronze or wood or stone. And they they take, uh, in the process of offering up their children to this god Moloch, what they would do is they would take a fire, they would burn it very hot, and then move the fire away, reach into the coals with some shovels, and scoop the shovels onto these hands that they had fashioned out of probably bronze or sometimes stone. And these nations, in loving this god named Moloch, would then, after a few minutes, take away the coals after the heat had been transferred into these hands, these metal hands, and then they would take their children, their sons and their daughters, and they would place them upon the hands, and the child would burn alive and immolate. And this is the type of practice that the nation's who inhabited the land of Canaan were doing. And I believe that in the righteousness of God, he justly wished for that to end. Therefore, he desired them to be wiped out. The sin which they had corrupted themselves with ultimately brought death, and that was a judgment of God. And so when God is seen as the one putting an end to that sort of practice, it's no longer genocide. We all agree today in America, especially because we're Americans, that it was righteous to put an end to Nazi Germany because of what they were doing to the Jews. And every last man, woman, and child who was involved in that persecution of the Jews ought to have been slain according to God's command that he gave to Noah. If man sheds blood by man, shall his blood be shed. And yet today, we don't really have any stomach for that sort of biblical justice. Nevertheless, God was absolutely right in sending them into the land. Why do I bring this up? Just to vindicate the righteousness of God. In God's command of sending the people into the land, he told them, you may not destroy any tree which bears fruit. 
This is a very small part of the Old Testament law, but it's so important because God's desire is seen through that commandment. He says, if the tree does not bear fruit, you may cut it down and use it for siege works. But if it bears fruit, you cannot remove it. Why? Because God wants fruit from the land. He wants a good harvest from the land. And so this is not a new desire of the Father. This is a desire from God, of God from all eternity. Everything in creation, God has established for life multiplication, goodness, glory, beauty. He says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, put it to good use. Anyone who's spent any time in nature enjoys the wildness of nature, but in, in my opinion, and probably in, I hope in God's opinion, a manicured garden and a well-taken-care-of sanctuary for nature that is established by garden keepers and landscapers is much more beautiful. God tells his people to ripple throughout the world and to beautify it and to glorify it. That's the exact same thing that's happening here. The father himself is seen as the one tending the vine, and he is the one who is the vine keeper. Now, what I think is amazing in this imagery of the father seeking fruit, desiring fruit, is he wishes to enjoy the product of his own creation. He wishes to be glorified in that creation and to see it and to take glory in it himself. Romans 1 says that the divine things of God, his eternal attributes, are plainly seen in the things which he has made. And when we understand Romans 1, and reinterpret Genesis 1 in the light of Romans 1, we see God saying over creation that it's good. It's good. It's good. And so what does this tell us? If the divine attributes of God are seen in the things which God has made, and God himself is saying over the creation that it's good, he's testifying of his own nature that he himself is good. He wants fruit. He wants life. He's a God who brings about goodness. And so what is so beautiful here in that imagery of God desiring fruit from the vine is his, reluctant, uh, his lack of reluctance to prune. And this is so important. Those things which are pruned ultimately are pruned in order that they would bear more fruit. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. F uh, branches and plants that do not bear fruit take away nutrients from the vine. Now, this isn't to imply that Christ being the vine is somehow diminished by the unfruitfulness of sinners. That's not what the analogy is here, but rather it's taking away space for new branches to grow in, new branches to get light. The analogy obviously can't be pressed too far, but every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. One of the things that I've enjoyed about my time in learning a little bit more about plants is the fact that pruning is actually, if you don't know what you're doing, pruning seems somewhat insane. Because what you're doing is you're taking a branch that has been productive and you're usually removing a certain amount of material from the branch so as to inspire other growth. This is exactly what pruning does. When you prune a branch, there's this thing at the end called the apical bud. And the apical bud produces a hormone which prevents all the other buds on the rest of the tree from growing. And when you remove that, uh, that bud, the little tip at the end of the, the branch, it releases a hormone that begins to activate all the other buds which were already there. Pruning 
only releases potential that was already in the branch. It does not cause new branches to be grown. It does not cause new buds to be formed. Rather, those buds are released. This is what it is when Christ prunes us or the Father prunes us. It is hurtful at a time. For sure, material is removed. Things are eliminated from our lives, but pruning is the only way in order to multiply fruit long term. It first, at first, diminishes the plant, but over time it brings greater strength and vitality. It absolutely is necessary if you are working any sort of vine or fruit tree or whatever that you prune, and that pruning releases life. That pruning is the act of the Father. Christ shows us in these passages that he's the source of all goodness. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he he it is that bears much fruit. Christ's bearing of the nutrients and life and source of the vine is absolutely vital to those who are considered branches, you and I being the branches. What happens if you take a branch and you chop it off of the tree or plant that it's connected to? It withers. It dies. Why? Because it does not have a root system. Branches do not have life in themselves. Only Christ has life in himself. And the Father has so given life to Christ that Christ gives it to his branches. He is the delivery system or the means by which those branches are not only sustained in life, but able to bear fruit. Any branch which is taken away and withers bears no fruit. And yet, this is simply the Father's action of recognizing what is already dead. If you're desiring fruit off of a tree or off of a vine and it's not bearing any fruit, it already is dead in a sense because it's not doing the purpose that you have for that tree or vine. And so the Father is simply removing those things which seem to be branches and yet are not branches at all. In verse 7, Jesus shows us the key to bearing fruit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So many young Christians, when they're just beginning to seek to be a disciple of Christ, will be talking and will be discussing, well, what is God's will for my life? God's will for your life is, as, as a, a, a guy by the name of Bill Johnson likes to, to jokingly say and, and truthfully say, well, heal the sick, cast out demons, cleanse, those, you know, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and have the, you know, preach the gospel to the poor. Well, what I mean is, should I be married or, or single? Well, which one do you want? Oh, I want to be married. Well, okay, get married and then cleanse the lepers and heal the sick. And God's will is that you would bear fruit. If you're engaged in something that keeps you from bearing any fruit, you're outside of God's will. And so understanding this, that abiding in Christ and asking for things that we uh, desire in God's will, we will get them. This is what Jesus Christ gives us as the key to unending and unceasing joy. If you want to find the the tree of life, the fountain of youth, joy unending, divine pleasure evermore, Jesus Christ gives it to you right here. He says, ask for whatever you wish in my will, and you have it. One of the things that's interesting to me is Christ is so confident in the Spirit's work to sanctify that he says, ask whatever you wish and you will have it. Ask whatever you wish. Now, of course, if we're not branches, 
in the, the vine, we won't actually desire and wish for things that are righteous and good. We'll eventually be pruned, and so it doesn't matter if we get what we wish. But here he says of the vines that are real, of the, uh, excuse me, the branches that are real, if they wish to do something great for the kingdom of God, ask for it and you have it. Now, I'm not saying you can ask for the Lord to magically pay off all your credit card debt. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is a boldness in zeal for God's kingdom to be established. I hear so many times people praying in such a way, Lord, if it's your will, let this person come to see you. Well, I would just encourage you, ask God to open their eyes and let him figure out if it's his will or not. At, at the very least, you'll save time in praying. I, I pray this way all the time. I, I pray in such a way as I do not coach or couch my prayers. I don't, I don't bank them on the side of, well, what if it might not happen? Because I believe that is sinning, because whatever is not of faith is of sin. And James tells us that the double-minded man will not receive anything at all. And so I believe that you should pray boldly according to what you understand to be God's kingdom purposes. Ask for whatever you wish. Hopefully your wishes by then have already been changed and then you will have it. Now, this right here is not the key to wealth, health, and all of these other things that so many have perverted it. Nevertheless, to react against the sin of the prosperity gospel so as to become so zealous in our prayers to wonder whether God wishes to convert anyone or wonder whether God wishes to heal anyone or wonder whether God wishes to have anyone come to the knowledge of his son is to make essentially a liar out of Christ. I believe that you must attack your unbelief with promises like this and this is the source of unending joy. By this my father is glorified. Well there you go. There's his will. God wishes for you to bear fruit, and that fruit can look many different, uh, take many different forms and look many different ways, but he wishes that you would bear fruit. So those branches which do not produce fright, uh, fruit are not true disciples of Christ. Remember earlier how we said this is one and the same. Obedience and abiding go hand in hand. Christ shows us here that loving him is inseparable from obedience. It's not that you can have some affection for Christ and then seek to do whatever you want, uh, let sin remain, uh, live a life of futility, uh, pursue things that are significantly outside of God's will. You cannot simply go on in sinning and disobeying Christ and actually love him. One of the things that's hard to do is to examine your presuppositions. All of us have an opinion of what love is. And then we hear Christ use the word love. And so we use our definition when Christ himself is giving us his definition of love. Love is not mushy feelings. Mushy feelings are made out of bad bananas and mashed potatoes. Love is concrete. Love is atomite. It is immovable. Love is obedience. Love is truly being united to Christ. And so God himself in Christ's teaching shows us, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. What did Christ do in loving the disciples? He called them to himself. He showed them the power of God through all of Judea, all of parts of Jerusalem that would have him. Some of the towns warred against them and expelled them. But he, he demonstrated the love and power of God, the authority over sickness and, and demons. And then Christ began to teach them. 
and he would give them these teachings which explain the nature of his kingdom and what it is that Christ wished to bring them into. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about Christ bringing us into the divine life himself. And, and by our union with Christ, by abiding in Christ, we understand that it is a concrete reality. Abiding in Christ, truly loving Christ, will necessarily result in obedience. How is this not a works gospel? The, the reason it is not a works gospel is that Christ does not say that if you obey me, then you will be loved by my Father in order to earn the love of the Father. He rather says, if you are truly loved by my Father, you will walk in obedience. And not obeying Christ is not your excuse to say, well, I'm not really predestined. <clears throat> I'm not really being drawn by God. I might as well go in sin. If you hear Christ's words like that, the temptation of the enemy will be that, well, you haven't obeyed yet, so you might as well move on. God didn't call you. No, rather, the, the, the call of the gospel is to lay down everything at the cross and to embrace the love of Christ and submit yourself to his will. That is what the gospel essentially is saying. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Keeping Christ's commandments is how we abide in his love. Because so many of us have adopted this mindset of spiritual devotion, things are good, and as long as those outweigh the bad things that I do in the week, I'm okay. I can be happy, I can have some modicum of normalcy or comfortability in life, and as long as I pray more and read my Bible more and do more good works, I can still have these pet sins and deny Christ in this area and still continue in my immaturity and all of these other things. No, Christ says abiding in him is by doing his commandments. Doing his commandments allows for abiding. They go together. It's a indwelling. It's not a separate or exclusive concept. They're not mutually exclusive. In loving us as the Father loved him, Christ shows us how love works. Love is a self-giving, self-sacrificing thing. Love begets obedience. That is, love of Christ, being loved by Christ, relates or, or causes obedience. And obedience stems from love. There's that language of vines and trees again. Obedience comes from abiding in Christ. Dwelling in the vine necessarily means you will bring about fruit. Abiding in Christ is not doing spiritual devotional things. I'm using air quotes for those on the, on the tape. Abiding in Christ is not doing spiritual things. You cannot disobey Christ, but then still read your Bible every day, and at the end of the day, justify yourself, saying, well, at least I'm, you know, reading my Bible, or at least I'm witnessing, or at least I'm sharing the gospel. You must seek to put every enemy under the feet of Christ. You must seek to submit your will to him, and so prove to be a disciple. This is why following Christ is so, so difficult. It's, with men, it is impossible. Christ says the way is narrow, and when you hear him teach like this, you must say, I can't do this. I can't do this at all. I don't even want to do this. It doesn't even sound like an attractive offer. <laughs> I want to be near the vine. I want to hang out and be doing my own thing. Love of Christ compels us to subject every aspect of life to him. This means how we treat our family members, how we relate to vocational 
authorities, whether it's a boss or if we're still in the time of having a tutor, our educational authorities, that is teachers, principals, things like this, church authorities, governmental authorities within reason. Again, every authority has its sphere and spheres which are broken or authorities which seek to operate outside of their sphere should be denied and disobeyed. Christ is not saying that uh, everything in life would subject to him in a total way. That is to say, understanding right spheres of authority does not mean that someone just by claiming authority has authority. Nevertheless, to truly obey Christ means to subject everything in life. We can't simply follow Christ, go to church on Sunday, and then on Friday night engage in rival, uh, you know, raucous partying, pornography, doing drugs, what have you. Nor can we go to church, be a faithful member, give a lot of money, and then take a huge amount of our money and spend it on things that are completely frivolous. I believe right stewardship says that we can't do that. Nor can we simply have a category of sins and yet inside maintain a heart life or a thought life that is full of grudges, full of bitterness towards our fellow Christians, That is just as vile and sinful as the things that we have named earlier, pornography, drug addiction, beating your wife, beating your husband, whatever it may be, neglecting your children. These are all things which cause Christ to say you do not really truly love him. It is the very fruit of disobedience which Christ is talking about right here. Fruit, uh, branches that do not bear good fruit are are cast away, whether there's no fruit or the fruit is rotten as soon as it comes out. And so when we see that sort of fruit in our life, we must ask for God to remove those types of branches. And understanding this rightfully, submitting every attitude, every aspect of life, every way in which we interact with others to Christ requires more than just me evaluating what I'm doing in life. It requires outside voices, be it pastoral authority, vocational authority, family authority, wives, husbands, etc., to be able to speak into my life in such a way as to call out the bad fruit. You are not the authority of whether or not you are producing good fruit. The fruit is measured by the vine keeper and the, those who the vine keeper gives to tend the vine. What I'm saying to you is working out your Christianity, working out your desire to love Christ takes a lifetime. And it also requires a team of people to help you do that. So Christ's words are given in this chapter that we would be the recipients of divine and unending joy. Fountain of youth, life everlasting, the tree of life. Jesus Christ himself says that this would be unending joy. This is how Christ is the way. He patterned self-giving love in order to be a model for and in order to bring us into the very love of God. This is how Christ commissions us. We're doing all of this in our teaching series here at the end of Easter to get ready for the ascension of Christ and the commissioning of disciples. Yes, we all want to be disciples. Yes, we want to go on mission. But what does it mean to go on mission? Christ gives us that very clue right here. John 15 verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then Christ goes on to define his terms. He explains how he loved him, loved them. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. At this time, the disciples did not really know what Christ was talking about. At that last supper, Christ knows what's going on. He knows what's 
to be anticipated, but it's very doubtful whether any of the disciples understood what was about to happen. And so Christ gives a foreshadowing of the cross here in verse 13. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Claiming to be a friend of God and yet never doing what Christ commands means that you are not a friend of God. Friendship is not defined by me, but rather the person who I seek to be a friend of, right? It's just to put it in, you know, kind of modern terms or human terms, it's the difference between Facebook and Twitter. You can follow anyone on Twitter, but on Facebook, someone has to invite you as a friend and accept you as a friend. This is what Christ is saying. You, you are not the definer of friendship with Christ. Christ is saying, if you do what I command you, then you are truly my friend. Therefore, loving our neighbor is inseparable from loving Christ. We cannot seek to love Christ, hear his command to love one another, and then disobey that and say we're still in love with Christ and loving Christ. Loving our neighbor includes loving those both inside and outside the church. This is so important, especially for a church of our size, a church which, with such great community that we are tempted from time to time to just maintain, well, the love of the church is good, the community life is good, but if we're never reaching out to those who Christ really came to call and draw to himself, then we are not truly obeying the call of the gospel. Christ warns his disciples about friendship with the world. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We're supposed to have the family resemblance, and that includes what happens to Christ in his uh, opposition. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now take that phrase, if you were of the world, the world would love you, and let's just work the logic backwards. Christ is very clear, if the world loves you, you are of the world. Now, this is a hard calling. Brothers and sisters, this is impossible in your flesh. It requires the Spirit of God in order to bring about these sorts of changes. I just want to submit to you that no one has ever attempted to stone me. And so even I fall short here. If I have ruffled a few feathers a few times. Christ was routinely rejected by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the towns. Routinely expelled from the, the midst of the people. They, they seek to make him king one time, and they seek to throw him over a cliff the other time. I don't know about you, but that doesn't, I don't see that happening that often. One of the greatest temptations in following Christ is to self-censor our own witness. You may have, at one point or another, stood up for Christ. You may have shared the gospel with someone else, occasionally, once or twice, or maybe you do it a lot. But Often, we self-censor because we are anticipating persecution and repercussion. We, we don't speak up for Christ uh, in order, in the name of not to cause a debate or stir, you know, ruffle too many feathers or, or stir up controversy, but this cannot be understood as rightfully uh, uniting with Christ and recognizing Christ. Christ said that if you deny me before men, my Father in heaven will deny you. And so, uh, or I will deny you before my Father. Excuse me, my paraphrases are off a little today. When we fail to speak of the need for the grace of Christ and so hide our light, we do deny him. In situations which we have authority to speak into, or even the opportunity to speak into, not speaking of the need for the grace of Christ, that is, sin... <sighs> Sin's answer and Christ himself being the answer to sin, the need for grace, the opportunity for grace, 
the availability of grace in Christ, when we do not bring the gospel to an atmosphere or to an area of life, we are functionally denying Christ. Christ himself did not shrink back from declaring to to the disciples the truth. He says, all that the Father has told me, I declare to you. Likewise, to hide our light for fear of persecution is to distance ourselves from him. We not only need to love our neighbor in doing nice things, when, when most of us hear good works, we may think of you know, particular things, whether they be chores or money that we could give or food or what have you. We also need to love our neighbor enough to speak the truth to our neighbor and to turn back the soul that is bent on destruction. That is what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ. Finally, Christ, at the end of this chapter, again declares to us the promise of the Spirit. And at, at this point, after encountering Christ's words and, and wrestling with them a little bit, we see we need the Spirit more than ever. Hopefully, if you are a follower of Christ, you have just saw, seen a great vision of what it means to be a disciple, and all the more you need the Spirit. You, you hunger for the Spirit a little bit, but in seeing Christ's mission, in seeing what it means to be a disciple of Christ, a lifelong journey by which you seek to imitate him and to grow in his knowledge and then cha- take that knowledge and have it come forth in a lifestyle, a lifestyle of being on mission, you desire the Spirit more and more. I have, uh, I've said this before, I've, I've been graced by God. He, God's given me a lot of wonderful blessings in life. I've had a, a number of opportunities to travel. I've eaten at some great restaurants. I've eaten at terrible restaurants too. But uh, I, I have a wife. We're about to have a daughter. I have a great family. I have great parents. This is a wonderful church. You guys are amazing examples of what it means to follow Christ. But what I, will, what I seek to impress upon you, that nothing in my life that God has given me would I give to you except for the presence of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. If there would be one gift that I could give to you, it would be unlocking a hunger in your heart to commune with the living God, day by day, hour by hour. The presence of the Holy Spirit is a gift that Christ unlocked when he ascended into heaven and asked the Father to send the Spirit, that he gave that to you as your portion, and it is the most precious thing that anyone could ever have. It surpasses all physical, emotional, spiritual experiences, highs, or joys. It is a source of unending joy and pleasure, the very presence of the Holy Spirit, and the day by day, hour by hour, even sometimes minute by minute, knowing that you are known by God and are accepted in the Beloved. That is the most precious gift that you could have. That is what we seek to reinvigorate and recounter at Pentecost. And this is what Christ gives you as the source of unending joy to do the mission, to do a mission that is at first terrifying and extremely high in terms of calling and our inability seen in the light of this makes us cry out for the spirit all the more. Pursue the spirit of God until you encounter him. Christ says that he will give the Spirit, and the Spirit will come and testify of Christ and of righteousness. At other points, Christ says that the Spirit will convict concerning righteousness, the fact that there is a judgment against sin, and the need for atonement. He will exalt Christ and empower these disciples to be the testifiers. Jesus says that the Spirit will come and testify about Christ, and then he says, and you will testify, necessarily implying that 
that the Spirit will have some transforming effect on these disciples, and the Spirit will so indwell them and so uh, surround them that they will begin to take on the very same action of the Spirit. In verse 24, but when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit bears witness about Christ. We as branches are abiding in Christ. The Father is pruning or removing. And then here, the Spirit begins to testify about Christ. And then from this point, we begin to look like and act like the Spirit. Verse 27, you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We are supposed to, if rightly understanding the call to follow Christ, understand that it is not simply a new life in which we know God. It's a new life in which we know God, the author of life, and he makes us the very agents which extend that life to those who are still in darkness, those who he is calling and drawing. And so all the more we need Pentecost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. He is amazing and beautiful, unending in glory. You have given us everything in, in giving us your son. And not only that, Father, you also promised that you yourself would come and abide with your son by the spirit of God. We pray, Father, that you would give to us spiritual understanding, that it would not simply be a inner life or a hidden life, but that it would become manifest, that it would be made real, that it would have some transforming effect. And God, I ask that you would give to us the hunger for your presence, that we would desire to live in such a way as to know who you are through your word, through your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.